so I am here with Jeanette Winnerson, who is most recently the author of Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. Jeanette, how are you doing? Hi, hello, thank you. Well, I've been on my 10 city tour, 10 cities, 10 days, so my brain's spinning round and round, but sure. it's, it's been fantastic because I've met all these really great people city after city. I heard you got two marriage proposals. I checked two marriage proposals? Ha- one from a man and one from a suitors. woman. <laughs> really? Wow. Yes, yes. So, so everyone, you're going to hit everybody. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought this may be a new structure for family life. You know, I think maybe we're getting somewhere here. You know, I slept in a in a brothel in Los Angeles. And, oh, you did? Well, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a legal brothel, but it was meant to be a fancy hotel. But I see. When I got back late at night, there were two people having sex in the corridor. I thought, <laughs> welcome to L.A. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get into the book. We have very yeah. little time, and I'll do my best to get as much sure. pith as we can. Your book arrives in the states at a very interesting time. I'm sure you have heard of, for example, the Mike Daisy, this American life scandal. There was the John Degada, Jim Fingal lifespan of a fact. Mm. And the timing of your book, at least when I read it, couldn't have been better because here you have a book where you write part fact, part fiction is what life is, and it is always a cover story. So my question for you in light of the ongoing debate between facts and storytelling, well, Mm. you know, when you work on a project or you mine from your life, what is your relationship to the facts and what obligation do you have to be true to the facts? If your life is part fiction, part fact, how do you write your way out so that your life becomes a new life in the form of a book? Yeah. Just to get us started here. It's always better if you read yourself as a fiction as well as a fact, because if you understand yourself as a story, you know that you can change the story um, because you are the story. And most, I think most interesting of all, you're not pushed by some momentum towards an ending that nobody wants you know that happens endlessly in people's lives um they say how did i wind up here how did this happen to me and they're genuinely bewildered as though they were pushed by some invisible force the hand of fate and one of the things that literature does is allow an intervention into that fateful feeling of life that you're being pushed by invisible forces you know it's it's freeing because it allows the mind to have a sane structure a way of thinking about life um, which means you're not simply driven and you're not simply a consumer so you're in charge much more but that is because you have this imaginative freedom you know it's not some seven step plan you know to world domination and be a master of the universe you don't want to be a person who's involved with world domination no you you strike me as someone who likes to control everything I do but adopt children have to be in control because you know look what happened the one time that we weren't yeah. you know hey mom wait you know bye so you know it does give you a kind of control freak mentality and i do but it's the imaginative freedom i think yeah. that, that literature in particular offers to the mind uh, offers it a structure you know people always say to me they said it with oranges they say it with this you know in a tick box kind of a way well you know did you really have a gospel tent did you drive an ice cream van you know did you yeah. work in a funeral parlor where you adopted by pentecostal evangelists um, the answer to all those questions is yes, but it's it's what happens inside those events and in my head that's really interesting. You know, my story is, you know, it's a strange story and, you know, it's a good story, but maybe I would never have been able to make anything of it if I hadn't been able to interpret it and to reimagine it for myself. But it is interesting if we can call your book so far some commodious vicus of recirculation, and I think that we can, Yeah. because if we look at oranges we have this transform into a television adaptation. And if we look Mm. at this book, Happy, you were here years before. I saw you hear the clip on Penn World Voices. And I was saying, my goodness, that's exactly what ended up in this book. You have performance spring from fiction. And in this, you have performance 
into nonfiction. So my my question right. is to you is, you know, how, how does this work for you? Do you need to constantly hit at the same event, the same through through a same cycle? I mean, I know that the first seven books you claim is a cycle, but mm. I would argue that maybe you're perhaps trapped in a cycle or happily trapped in a cycle or a perpetual motion of constant self-examination whether through fact or through fiction. Yes, I think, but 25 years is a long gap um, to to revisit the material. And I was compelled to revisit Wintersome World because the second part of Why Be Happy is is kind of a racy detective read, really, because it's the search for my biological mother, the biomar, as I call her. And during that search, I kept a close journal. I had to because I found that uh, I was so emotionally disturbed and upset by it that I needed to exercise that control privately. And it was never meant for public consumption. And then that necessarily made me think about Winter world again. Of course, I began to revisit that material. And there was an enormous creative push uh, behind this book. I found I'd written 15,000 words in two weeks, yes, which tells it. you something is going on. Yeah. You know, And you have to follow it. You know, If you're a writer, an artist of any kind, you must trust your own creative process above all, and not be your own censor, you know, not be the, the stop on your own process, You know, which I yeah. think is what happens to people in these terrible creative writing school things that they go to. Um, so this, this revisitation for me was necessary. But you know, the return is an ancient and noble tradition in fiction. You know, it's what it's what happens to Ulysses in the Odyssey. He's continually reminded to remember the return. Ten years sailing the seas, fighting everything, you know, having sex with crazy ladies, um, slaying cyclopses, and he has to remember the return. Yeah. And so we do. You know, and T.S. Eliot says that you know, we, we'll always return to the beginning, that you know you, you come back to where you begin from and to some extent you do, but and not in a reductive way, but in a way that you try continually to to make sense of the whole pattern of your life rather than the separate fragments of it. Yeah. Do you always need some textual foundation whenever you are engaging in a project, whether it be fiction or, in this case, something we, I'm not sure if it would entirely be safe to call it a memoir but it is drawn from your life it wouldn't be safe to call yeah. it a memoir yeah. no I mean I call it a cover version because yes. I think all of life is yes. um, you know I think there's always a cover story and I think there's always a cover version we're always singing our own song again you know and putting in a bass and rhythm that's a bit different you know you're quite right that's how it is yes well let me ask you something if the facts can go into a book I'm mm. wondering if certain details that you have lived have in fact been anticipated from your book at, at any point in your life? Have you managed to predict things through the sort of textual foundation that you're laying down and then perhaps years later something happens from a book? Have you, you know, any insight to humanity, any personal insight, <laughs> anything along those lines? Or? I think I think that life does imitate art and I think if you work closely with your own creative process, with your own imagination, there is um, something of a, of a, a prophesying quality to your life. Um, you can see further along your own trajectory. And it's almost as though, you know, it's fashionable now to talk about world mind or the sense of the hive mind. Yeah. That we can get, we can be bigger and outside of the small space that we occupy. Um, and I think that's true. That's a phenomenon that, that artists and writers, musicians have noted for many years across time. It's not new to science. It's some strangeness of the spirit that in fact linear time is only surface time. And there is such a thing as well, I think of it as significant time or total time, um, where you do get this curious sense um, of the bigger picture where past and, and future no longer make sense. You know, there's an interesting book coming out this summer, a neuroscience book, um, which is called Remembering the Past and in, uh, um, no, Remembering the Future and Inventing the Past. Yes, I think I've yeah, heard of this. Yeah. Which is very, you know, they finally caught on, you know, to what Proust was saying all yes. along. Um, and also, you know, that there are in, in many religious traditions, there simply isn't this division between past, present and future. We must live now, of course yeah. we must. Um, but the curious 
curious thing is that the past and the future, given that neither of them are actually present in the moment, um, can become the same thing. Sure. You note in the coda that you were writing this book in real time, since we're talking about time. Yes. And throughout your work, there has been this very interesting concern for size, for measurement, the exchange of units. Let me just give you a few examples. In this book, you define being little as the size that hides under tables and climbs into drawers. The narrator in Written on the Body, who would gladly have traded blood in body for half a pint of vegetable stock. The way you note the 300-pound genie that Sinbad releases the bottle in this book. And aside, of course, from the dog woman who was too big for, uh, for, for her world, you write in Sexing the Cherry, our rate of conductivity is probably determined by an ability learned or innate to make the foreground into the background so that the distractions of the everyday no longer take up our energy. So if true art stands, as you suggest, mm. in opposition to its cunning counterfeit, my question is how does measurement help you to create true art or transform the foreground into the background, just to lay a bunch of stuff here. Well, detail is fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, I love to see the world in little um, and also to see it, you know, in, in out, out of scale, enormous. It's, it's interesting to play with detail. I mean, that's what the best picture making does anyway. You yeah. know, it's what Picasso was doing. You know, it's, it's a way of making us see things differently by either stretching or shrinking the known world. Because, you know, the trouble is that most of us go through life in a kind of a blur. We don't really notice anything. I mean, we don't notice the table. It's just the surface on which to place our cup. You know, I mean, the gentle joke is we never notice our loved ones after we've known them for about two years. Um, we stop seeing. And the whole purpose of art is to sharpen the senses, to make you see, to make you hear, um, to make you be able to talk differently, to feel differently. And you can only do that if you are very receptive to detail. And that yeah. includes measurement. You know, what size is it? And what would happen if I stretched it? And what would happen if I shrunk it? But you have also recently joined the 140 character unit as well. I love I mean, Twitter. I can't believe I'm saying this to you. I, um, I, I never I thought I would. Too, yeah. I never, but yeah, it's because I like to say something elegant within the constraints of the 140. If I can't, I won't bother. But if we look at the world by compartmentalizing it into details, mm. uh, is this really the way to win people away from those who would escape willfully into you know some online universe of their own making where they have friends that may or may not in fact be friends or television or anything really i mean do you have any thoughts on how this compartmentalization the stretching of time the stretching of space can be used to sort of suck these people in and say hey there's more to the universe than your facebook likes i hope there is i mean we're in real trouble if there isn't more than facebook um any no, ideas here? i don't think it's about compartmentalizing I think it's the opposite. I think it's about breaking down those boundaries. But an eye for detail is the prerequisite of, of a creative person of any kind in any medium. Um, you have you have to notice things. You know, that's what's so delightful. You notice the way people walk, the way they dress, the way they speak. You, you know, you notice the patterns of trash on the sidewalk. Yeah. Um, and this is liberating. It's not constraining because you are then fully present in your universe. And I just want people to be present. I don't want them to be in some cyber world or some virtual world. You know, I, you know I'm still the general generation of the actual you know i like 3d yeah. you know call me old-fashioned but i do yeah um you know it's why you know i said about kindle on twitter that you know it's fine for traveling but you know it's like phone sex you know it's not as good as the real thing you know it's i want sort of something i can touch you can hook up so easily thanks to the internet you know it's nuts it's nuts i mean and there the, should be some know, effort involved don't you think yeah that maybe that's the answer yeah. then it would stop all those guys watching porn and having no <laughs> sperm count you know that's really worrying me yeah. um because what are we going to do if all they do is sit there watching porn and then they can't relate 
speak to their girlfriends or, what or have any babies. What impact have on the population problem, you know? Well, it might, I suppose yeah. that might be useful. But it's really important that we need we should be together. And I think one of the things that books do is that it, it gives you um, both common values uh, and a common mind. I mean, there's nothing people who read like better than to say, did you read this? Oh, that's my favourite passage. I love that. And we share it. You know, when you go into somebody's apartment, the first thing you do is go and look at their bookshelves and you want to know if you have those things that you share in common. Yes. Um, and nobody ever said, wow, can I see your Kindle index? Yes. Um, on the subject of illusions, virtual realms, I wanted to actually discuss how Mrs. Winterson, who I'll refer to it as that since you refer to your mother as that in the book, um, she read you Jane Eyre and then actually... She did. And then she completely reinvented the fate of uh, of who she married at the end. Uh, but what was interesting to me when I was reading this book is that you did not mention Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso no. Sea. Well, and there was no need to because no it was to. well, it wasn't relevant to to Winterson World. Huh. Um, it was simply the way that you know, obviously Mrs. Winterson had. It was the only the only adult book that she apart from the Bible. Yeah, I yeah, suppose yeah. that's an adult book that she read out loud to me. And of course, she just turned the pages, uh, inventing uh, the style extempore in the style of Charlotte Bronte. So allowing Jane Eyre to marry St. John Rivers and go off and do missionary work. Yeah. Extraordinary. Um, so that that was that was an example of Mrs., both of Mrs. Winston's uh, mania and cunning, but also that she had been well-read. She understood books, which is why she forbade them in our house. Yeah. Um, she wasn't an illiterate, stupid person by any means. Um, it's because she knew the power of language that she wanted to make sure that I shouldn't have secular language or secular influences. Yeah. So that's why Jean Rees didn't come into it. But I love Wide Sargassus. It's a fabulous book. Why couldn't it have made it into Winterson World in the tail end of the book, which takes place in more recent years? Well, he didn't, honey, did it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can't curious. go yeah. around saying to writers, why didn't you put that in? Uh, no, I mean, you know, no, but I'm, I'm really curious. I mean, you know, my, my own experience with Jane that. Eyre is, is like, I've actually tried, I'll confess to you, go I've on. tried to read Jane Eyre multiple times. Have you? Yes, I have. And. It has never quite stuck with me. I, yeah. I get bogged down in, in some of the, the high flighty stuff, but I love White Sargassa Sea. Yeah. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't. I've read that White Sargassa Sea like three times. But I you see, I think that's yeah. fine. I don't, yeah. th- I don't think it, it, it's, um, you know, it's not a moral judgment on yeah. you or a defect yeah. or a like. I think, you know, it's like Bohr has said that when we come to a text, we enrich it yes. by bringing ourselves to it. Sure. Um, and so, you, you know, you can have that ripped out buccaneering spirit where you just say, okay, I'll take this and I'll make it into something else, which is what James Reese does yes. um, and that's the one that you connect with and and I think that's really exciting because it just shows how the thing isn't a kind of museum piece but it's it is kinetic and it moves somewhere else sure. well speaking of Mrs. Winterson there is a dash driven paragraph about halfway through the book where you have her applying various charges to locations bestiality for the pet parlor oh, yes. <laughs> unmarried mothers to the day nursery so to what degree does containing Mrs. Winterson in words help you to insulate her both from yourself and also while we're talking about this idea of what the reader takes away the readership <laughs> well I think this time I've let her loose yeah. I mean she is also the dog woman in Sexing the yes, Cherry the, yes. the, the, the gigantic um, lonely philosophical creature um, who adopts Jordan uh, from the banks of the River Thames um, I've worked with her often um, as a dream figure as a, as, as a kind of psychopath, which I suppose she was in a way, but also as a psychopomp, you know, which in myth stories is is the strange um, part angel, part devil creature who often tells the stories. You yes. know, you find him in the Arabian Nights very often as kind of a, a liminal creature inhabiting two worlds, which in a way she did because she lived in end time. She was waiting for Armageddon. You know, 
and that's what she wanted. So she was only ever partly in our world because, you know, she called life a pre-death experience, you know, which tells you a lot about her psyche. So I wasn't insulating myself any longer. I had to do that in Oranges because that was a cover version I yeah. could live with. Um, I couldn't I couldn't have told this story 25 years ago. Um, I really couldn't. That would have been the end of me and it would have been a, a very different traje- trajectory for me. But I can tell it now. And I wanted to release her like, like, like the genie, like the 300-foot genie from the bottle and give her back to the reader because I think the reader comes out feeling compassion for this woman, sympathy even. And... Um, also understanding more about both about me, Jeanette Winston, the writer, and also the place that I come from. It's not covered up at all. I think um, this is the most revealed book that I have ever written, which is not to say that the language isn't, isn't as, as conscious and as taught as I like it to be. It's important to me to work with language. Um, but it, it, is, it is a completely honest book. It's a truthful book, yeah. Can you reveal too much of yourself through these particular projects? Yes, you can. You can get very oversharey yeah. if you're not careful. Yeah. Um, How have you stopped yourself from doing this? Do you oh, have a good team that's going to say, hey, Jeanette, you know, maybe you don't want to actually tell the world that. No, I made a choice and it's the center of the book. There's yeah. one page called Intermission. Yes. And I say, I'm going to miss out 25 years, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought would be good for the memoir anyway, because I thought this time the form got to kick up the arse, you know, and it became just a bit more fluent yeah. and less linear. Um, so I thought, well, that'll give, that'll give people people later a clue they, you know, they won't feel so bound um, to go through this from A to Z um, and I did that in order not to bring in lots of people from the middle of my life which would have turned it into more of a kiss and tell book and it would have been about sex and gossip and money and I thought I'm not letting this be hijacked um, by, by the lurid press I'm going to tell the story as I need to tell it and miss out the things which will spoil the story in a, in a, in a real way by, by that I mean as a spoiler and a spoiling but where does order come in for you? I mean, you're reading the books in the library, A to Z, A to Z. I was. And this sort of leads me to, to ask you, because I also know that at the very beginning of each day, you, instead of bicycling to work, most of us who work in the freelance world have the ideal commute, bed to desk, 30 seconds, best commute in the world, right? <laughs> uh, you, on the other hand, get an, a, into a stationary bike and you start just jamming in that for a while. Because, oh, no, it's not stationary. Oh, oh it's not stationary. Oh, you no. actually do buy bicycles. I do. Oh, really? Yes, but I come okay. right back to where I started from. So we, we may be at the start of our conversation. Uh-huh. Um, I have a studio. Um, uh, in the garden of my house but I will not leave my house and walk, go to the studio I see I have to get on my bicycle oh I see and I cycle for 15 minutes because I there's a circular lane where I live in I live in a village in the Cotswolds yes and uh, I just cycle around it and come back and then I can start work got it okay. so well, why do you need to I don't have to you don't have I do. to why do you what does that do for you like reading in sequence or going from A to Z in this case mm. <laughs> to work mm. I mean it's very fascinating to me that this seems to be and this kind of relates back to my question about units of measurement you know do you need order in order to find something distinct something idiosyncratic something quirky something brand new that nobody else has do you need to have a destination to find a completely idiosyncratic journey what's the deal Um, here I think it's, uh, well, I 
try Flaubert when yeah. he said that the artist needs to be ordered in his habits so that he can be wild in his imagination. Yeah. And that's a good quote. Yes. And that yes. works entirely for me. I am extremely Common ordered. Common in your life so you can be uh, yeah. wild and original. Yeah. Well, if you case, came yeah. into my house, you yeah. know, it's lovely. I mean, it's ordered, it's warm, it, it's beautiful. There's, there's there's always food, you know, it, it's everything's clean. Yes. Um, and I like it that way. You yes. know, the garden's attractive and I grow vegetables. That allows me to be completely free in my mental spaces. Yeah. Now, I'm not, this isn't this isn't a prescription no, no, no. by any means no, no. but everybody who does creative work must quite soon work out the best way for that to happen yeah. um, and stick to it you know and a lot of people imagine that there is this this bohemian disorder and that somehow that's better for them you know they think it's a kind of rock star thing and they should be just writing the songs at four in the morning it seems to work very well for rock stars i'm not sure that it necessarily works well for other forms of creativity but, you know, 15,000 words in two weeks, it's it seems to me that you're also struck by flashes of inspiration. So you could possibly be the rock star who has an idea oh, for the Oh, I get plenty of inspiration. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's never been an issue. I've never had writer's block and I've never had the slightest worry, even for a moment, that the thing would stop. Um, I feel very confident there. But I do like that space, you know, and I work, even though I live alone, I mean, I wouldn't live with my girlfriend because it'd be terrible. But even though I live alone, I still have to have a studio space separate to my domestic space and yes. I have to bicycle to it. How many different spaces do you need in life? <laughs> Several. So, um, you have about 10? Well, I have to... I have my place in London, yeah, I have yeah, yeah. my shop and then I have my place in the country and I yeah. have my studio um, and um, I also have a secret room in Paris. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, that's very <laughs> intriguing. Um, I wanted to get back to the book You Are Adopted, as we've been saying. But I'm wondering if it is an inevitable part of life that we transform in some sense to our parents. Uh, How do you deal with this? I mean, you write late in the book, I wanted to be claimed. Mm. Now, isn't it essential to claim yourself at some point? I mean, if you've always been interested in stories of disguise, uh, in mistaken identity, how do you recognize yourself? I mean, does the disguise of truth within Mm. stories create additional problems with self-recognition here? No, I think it allows you um, to play with all your possible selves, um, all um, the options, um, because none of us is one thing. But sometimes it feels like that or we get forced into that because of the way society is structured. Um, And it's it's great privilege and freedom to think, well, I could play with all these other selves. You know, it's partly why I have a shop. You know, that's another life completely. That's why I grow vegetables. You know, there are many JWs, but they all come together in the one that writes the books, which I think is the important thing. Um, And yes, I do feel settled now and and claimed and reclaimed in myself but you know I'm not free from the normal anxieties of the rest of the population we sure. all want to belong and we want we, we are gregarious creatures you know we are, we are we're pack animals um, we don't always want to be the one who's the outlaw and on the outside we'd like to be inside sometimes and it's a very lonely place if you're always on the outside yeah Do you have a finite sense of selves? Because it also seems to me that that has got to be... If you're you're constantly dredging up different selves and you're also worried about this issue of, um, of, of being an outsider in some sense or being, you know criticized by a media climate oh no i'm not worried about that i don't care about being criticized um if you're going to be an artist you mustn't you you really can't care about that because you know nobody is 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 going to give you an easy ride for all of your life somebody's always going to come out you know with both guns so that's how it is it's not that no it's actually it's 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 much more it's a much more of an existential loneliness it's where you position yourself um on on 
on the radar of humanity? You know, are you in its sights um, or are you always just being missed out or in some ways? And that sense of belonging, it's not to do with how many friends you've got. It's not to do with how many girlfriends you've got. You know, I've always had good friends and I've usually been with somebody. Um, it isn't that at all. It's it, That's why I call it an existential loneliness. It's something at the centre of the self. And possibly it always will be. Um I think so, although I'm comfortable with that now. And I think that solitariness might be a necessary condition for being able to create something and comment on the world. You need that slight distance, I think. Sure. Um, you write, I noticed that I hate Anne criticizing Mrs. Winterson. She was a monster, but she was my monster. Yes. So this leads me to ask why you're so possessive about describing your mother as a monster. I mean, you know, what of this? The reader is going to possibly come away thinking that Mrs. Winterson is a monster. But, I think you know, they will, but yeah. they, then they also think that it's a right, she's a right, in, in some ways, um, she'll seem to them to be a rather friendly monster, even though I'm a rather monstrous monster. But she was my monster, and I never expected to be defending her. It was the most astonishing moment uh, when somebody else was criticising her, because, you, you know, I had always been the one who was critical of her. Um, you know, it's like somebody somebody really upset my girlfriend the other day, and I found myself saying, you know, that's just not on. I'm the only person who's allowed to hurt you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And we both laughed. I mean, it broke the moment. But, you know, there is some truth in that, isn't there? You know? <laughs> um, I, I, I have to bring up the Nori brick. Simply oh, yeah. because there is a connection here from uh, a Kringden to New yeah, York. New York. Uh, Who yes. thought it? Yes. The hardest brick in the world built at Crington at, at the time and which contributed to the foundation of the Empire State Building. Yep. So uh, do you feel, with this book, I must ask, since we're talking about foundation, what, that you have reclaimed that town? Or is the routinely brutal world of the working class north of England that you describe something that is as bound in your life as a D.H. Lord's volume? <laughs> I guess it is. I mean, I, I have a connection with the north. No one yeah. can help it. You know, where yeah. you're born does matter to you. It doesn't go away. It stays with you. Even if you flee from it, you know, that is a relationship. You know, you know, a relationship is also running away. It's not just running towards. And sometimes you have to reconcile yourself to the thing. And there's a nice chapter in this book about Manchester, where I was born. Um, and it, it's it, it's affectionate and it takes, it takes that town on. Um, as it is in all its brutality and also in its poetry, um, you know, in its glory as well as its terror. And that's something that you can do perhaps later in life. It, I think it's the tone of the whole book. It, it's about um, some sort of accommodation or reconciliation with many things that I had fled from or had to push aside, whether it was my family or my hometown, um, you know, religion. Things can come back if you make a space in the self to allow that to happen. Sure. Rather than just trying to repress everything and block it out. And for me, anyway, you know, the whole process of this book has shown me that I am in a different place. Otherwise, I could never have written it. Yeah. And, and that's rather lovely because books are cleverer than their writers. And at the end, you think, oh, did I get there? Yes. So you needed the book to confirm where you were in life. Almost. I think I did. Yeah. yeah because, yeah. And that's how I understand it. I mean, I've always written, uh, you know, language has been my guide and it's also been the shape of my life yeah. so it makes sense that it should be so now you once said to pop matters that a cat was the best thing that you bought stole or borrowed so which, <laughs> i have to ask which verb was it and how much does a person or how much do you need to borrow 
and steal to stay alive. <laughs> well, I think all artists are thieves. You yeah. know, we're always stealing from somebody else. Um, I also think about the bits with the bottles, returning them back. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. I think, and but cats, yeah, I've borrowed cats. I have stolen a cat. I've never bought a you cat. You stole a cat? Huh? Yeah, I did. It was being very ill-treated by its owner. Really? Yeah, and you I reclaimed it. You liberated it. Yeah, I did, and it was a good lesson to my godchild because I said, "Look, it's wrong to steal." <laughs> It really? was, yeah. We went through it as a moral issue. Because um, she said, you can't do that. It's stealing. And I said, it is stealing. But I said, if we leave the cat here, this cat will die. So what can we do? I said, this is a genuine moral question. Let's think it through together. So the owners of the cat were just leaving it and, and abandoning it? Yeah, is that it was, was terrible. Wow. And I just thought, you know, and it was a really good moment for us to discuss something like that, which is quite complex. And I said, yeah, you know, what we're doing is not right uh, in some ways, but it'd be much worse for this cat to die. So this is what we're going to do, whether you know, whether it's right or wrong. Yes. Going back to memory really quick, and I'm trying to cram in as much as I can <laughs> while we're almost okay. done here. Uh, not long after you raise a question about whether your memory is true true or not true, you write, until I was two years old, I screamed. This was evidence in plain sight that I was possessed by the devil. You say that being a devil baby imbued you with a strange yet vulnerable power, but this is an interesting issue because if you have no memory of your screaming, how can you have knowledge of the power? And to what degree have you screamed since? Oh, I don't. You don't? No, I know. I'm very contained. Is Um, the page where you screamed? (laughs) No, I remember it was, it was uh, there was a terrible incident. I had to have my um, adenoids out when I, it's in the book later yeah, on, yeah. Um, because this I mean this was the real problem. It was nothing to do with the. This, I mean I was actually ill, but Mrs. Winterson wouldn't recognise that. Yes. I mean there were very often times where she simply wouldn't recognise the the ordinary limitations of the body um, because she hated her own body so yeah. much. So she was very ill prepared to bring up a child because children always have little ailments and fevers and problems and they need fixing you know quickly. <laughs> Um, but that didn't happen. And uh, she was very bitter about it as life went on, just saying that I'd screamed and screamed and what a terrible first two years they'd had, you know, with no sense at all that, the, you know, A, she might have been implicated in the screaming, and B, that I was ill. The text in this book is aware of itself. After you write the sentence, the one good thing about being shut in a coal hole <laughs> is that it prompts reflection, you then write, right on its own, that is an absurd sentence. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It I is. know. But then you go on to point out that figuring out how life works involves saying yes to life. So if you recognize the absurd of the inherent in a sentence, a life sentence, I suppose, mm. uh, <laughs> then how is this saying yes to life and, and how does fiction from the author and the reader standpoint is mm. saying yes to life? Mm. Is it about this freedom that we were talking about before, about just being free on the page and, and, and not really concerned about how you appear or something like that? It's about energy. It's about turning towards life, not hanging back from life, you know, not balancing on the rim. Um, People are always frightened of making mistakes and getting it wrong. You know, it doesn't matter to make mistakes and get things wrong. You know, people worry about false starts. Um, They don't matter either. You can always pull yourself out. It's much better just to get in there and mess it up than to hover about. And, you know, it's why all these, you know, successful businessmen have always been bankrupt at least twice. You know, it's the same thing in life. You have to risk it. And what I always say to kids, because I do a lot of work in schools, um, is you know don't hang back you know don't be a coward take risks find out what you believe in and stand up for it and go and yes you will get hurt hearts are made to be broken 
but go out there and live. You know, one of the reasons why so much modern fiction is so thin and poor is that people don't live. You know, they yeah. don't take any risks. Yeah. Um, they don't live in their head and they don't live in their bodies and they don't live in the world. You know. Why do you think that is? Um, because we are creating a dystopian society now. It is frightening um, where people think that everything can be virtual um, where the environment has now been so trashed that lots of people are not connected with it at all and don't even care about it. You know, I think we're in the minority, the ones who do care. Yeah. I think, uh, people are very cut off, very disconnected. Um, we're cynical because we've seen what politics does. There's no one to believe, no one to trust. We've seen how the banks and the corporate systems just r run everything and rip everything off. Um, and in the face of that, it can just be very easy to retreat, you know, into your virtual world, into your Facebook pages and your Google, you know, and your, your Xbox. And just think, I'm not going out there. But is storytelling a strong enough tool with which to actually encourage people to live? Yes, I think it's strong enough to make an intervention because we're hardwired to tell stories. You know, even the most the most cynical and hard-boiled person, you know, they'll meet a friend in the street and they'll say, you'll never guess what happened to sure. me today or, you know, let me tell you what I did. I mean, that, that's a micro-narrative. You know, it's the, it's the way that we are made. And so all you have to do is to tap into that ordinary desire to hear stories and to tell stories. And that in itself will prompt the imagination and free the spirit. Okay, you have to go, Jeanette. Thank you so much so much it was a pleasure to chat and hopefully we can do this again thank you very much Ed thank you. Thank you. okay